Welcome to the Kelly Mental Health Podcast. I'm Linda Kelly, CEO of Kelly Mental Health in Thunder Bay and founder of the Kelly Mental Health Foundation. This podcast is about life. It's about the things that we love to discuss, relationships and health and how to be well, how to live a life that's worth living and making sense of the life we've already lived. I'm so, so grateful that you've decided to listen to our podcast, and I hope that some of the information that we're able to provide from mental health counselors that we have on the show is helpful for you. And I hope, too, that many of the stories that you hear resonate with you because they're very important, and it's so nice for us to be able to discuss this openly without fear, knowing that someone out there does care. Stay tuned. Hi, Kelly. Hello. Welcome to our 17th podcast. Wow. Uh, we are well into season two, and we're kind of starting to shy away from the uh, the pandemic talk. But of course, as you know, we're, we're still very much in it. So it does tend to uh, color our experiences lately. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the reason I wanted to bring you on today is actually to talk grief. Now we, we have talked grief in a different podcast before when Cassandra lost her grandmother. Uh, the reason that I wanted to bring it up again is because it was, it's kind of a different time again. When Cassandra's grandmother passed, they really could ha- couldn't have really anyone at the funeral. And when my aunt very suddenly, unexpectedly passed away, um, the the restrictions on crowds had just started to open up. And so that kind of created almost more complication. Mm-hmm. And um, as with anything grief-related, I mean, personally, I've always found it one of the more difficult issues to deal with with a client because you can't change the situation. It just is. Yeah. Right? So just curious, you know, what, what, uh, what are your experiences treating, um, well, treating, I guess, dealing with grief, working with clients? Well, it's funny. Um, growing up, I thought I would want to be a grief counselor. I know I remember a time when I was actually in elementary school. One of our teachers passed away at school. She ended up having a heart attack. And they brought in these grief counselors to help everybody. And I thought, wow, like, this is such a cool job. They're really being here and helping people in their time of need. And then when I became a therapist, I realized I don't like working with grief. <laughs> and not that I don't <laughs> like working with it, but that, like you said, it's hard. It's not something that you can change. And it's not something that can be rushed either. So it's really meeting the client where they're at, but it's hard. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. I, I think maybe just in comparison with other issues, you know, say you've got social anxiety. Okay. Well, there's a protocol for that. We can treat that. You know, it it usually involves um, a lot of education about what's happening, why your body sends you into fight or flight, you know, uh, some progressive exposure, that kind of thing until you're, you're kind of pushing up against those phobias so much so that you become stronger. Whereas with grief, it just, again, all I can say is it just is, and that's, that's really what happened. So, you know, I'll share what, what actually occurred. My, my aunt who, um, she's had a lot of health issues throughout her life. She had a a blood clot and that came, um, I guess it came from her arm or this is what was said. Anyway, it went straight to her heart. She, um, went into cardiac arrest and they couldn't bring her back. She was 51. She had three kids. So my, my cousins that are are grown Mm -hmm. now, um, with their own lives, but certainly, um, actually, you know, uh, Eric, that's yeah, Eric's mom. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, it was just such a shock for the family. And there was a lot of uh, maybe fear and confusion and, you know, like, what do we do? What's the right thing to do? Because they had moved down to Southern Ontario just a few years ago after living here, you know, their mm-hmm. whole lives. And, you know, with the pandemic and traveling, it was really hard on a lot of family members because they wanted to be there. That was the right thing to do, but you didn't want to crowd the church. You didn't want to put yourself at risk and potentially creating more tragedy. 
So, so yeah, it was, uh, it was very difficult. And then even just the loss of a person that you've known your whole life. And one thing that stood out to me is that I was her flower girl in, um, I think it was 1989. So it's four <laughs> years old. And I, we all had the, well, she was the only person in the world I know who could have a wedding party, rock hot pink <laughs> and, and hot pink oh, nice. and pull nice. it off. And with our, our hair was all up to the side and curled and poofy and it was great. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it occurred to me though, you know, I was there for the beginning and then, then the ending of her marriage yeah. and probably the majority of her yeah. life. And it's so, it's so wild sometimes to think about that, that once you start getting older, you, you do see the beginning and the end. You see someone's story completed. Mm-hmm. And it just, it, it's crazy. It just kind of sits with you. I, I'm, cur- I'm curious, like, has, have that, has it ever happened to you? Have you experienced that feeling? Absolutely. And I mean, not necessarily that feeling directly, but recently I've actually been feeling that I have, especially two people I'm doing EMDR with on grief. So we're really diving into kind of the grief and what happened. And we're both, both targets that I'm working with, with both clients are when they lost their husbands. And I just really feel for these people, you know, you can really put yourself in their shoes and just imagine how they feel. And then it makes me think about my fiance, you know, like what's going to happen when he goes or what's going to happen when I go and just kind of that pain and that sadness that's left from it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's it's something a lot of people don't like to think about. I I often refer back to my friend that's a financial planner and, and I asked her, you know, do people talk to you about, you know, death and estate planning? And she's like, no, I have to drag people through just to talk about, you know, this is an inevitability. I mean, ideally, you get to live into your 90s and, you know, in great health and no issues. And but, you know, the longer you live, the more people, you know, are not going to be here. So it's either, it's either you or them. It's important to plan because I've had many clients that are just left with a mess that they have to clean up and they have to take care of. So you don't even really think about it. Like when you're gone, you know, you're gone, but you have everything that other people have to take care of your money, everything you own, everything that comes with that. So it's actually really important to be prepared and to have those conversations. Hmm. Well, you know, I was even surprised uh, going down there because I, I was one of the few that did go. And uh, it had been so long since I saw a casket. Mm-hmm. Like that's almost out of style these days because, well, I mean, really, it's the expense, yeah. I think. I mean, we're, we're talking this beautiful mahogany wood, like just so much detail on this beautiful thing. And then encased in concrete with this top um like painted in gold with the name on it and it was just like holy cow like that's that's a lot and I can't imagine I don't even want to know how much that cost but I mean funeral expenses are really significant and mm -hmm. so yeah most people obviously go for cremation because it is a little bit more affordable but then there's also the question of what do you what do you do with the ashes absolutely I've actually had that conversation with my Beyonce. I was very clear. I was like, no, I want to be cremated and I want my ashes spread somewhere near water, which looking, looking at it now, I'm kind of thinking I want them spread where we're going to get married because that's right by water and it's a meaning and significant place for me. I've always wanted, you know, if people are going to go visit me or remember me, I want them to be at a beautiful place and kind of feel that nature and a little bit of that happiness around them. Mm-hmm. Right. Wait, is that legal? It actually is. I Googled right? it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, good, good, good. Or he's sneaking them there. Uh, but... 
Yeah, I've, I've talked about it too. And honestly, I, I mean, I tend to be, I, I like to joke that I'm a bit of a paranoid person. <laughs> I like to think of, you know, all the possibilities and what could happen. And, you know, there's times in my life where I used to sleep with my with my car keys beside my bed because I read that, you know, if someone ever breaks in your house, hit the alarm button on your car and it'll bring some attention and, you know, all those things. But that's why talking about death has never really scared me off. And I, I know a lot of people don't feel the same way. Like they, they're very, um, it's, it's sad to try to think of, you know, what you actually want to do, have done. It's sad to think that, you know, every time you have a relationship with anyone, one of you will probably outlive yeah. the other. Unless you go the notebook way and just, you know, leave together holding hands. Spoiler, <laughs> spoiler. <laughs> I only had like 10 years to watch that movie. Just... <laughs> Everybody always said it was too sad. So I just oh, yeah, I cry to it. <laughs> <laughs> but crying, you know, crying, especially in the context of grief, even if you're crying about something else, can you speak a little bit to just that the way that crying can be healing for a person? It really helps you release those emotions. I mean, if you're trying to be strong and bottle it up, your bottle's going to explode eventually. It's going to break. You can't hold everything in. So by allowing yourself to feel and allowing yourself to cry and let out these emotions, it helps you process these emotions and it does help you heal. I mean, you may get sick of crying every day because you lost your husband, but that's what you and your body needs to heal. So it's important to let that happen. Mm-hmm. I I noticed too when you know being at a funeral there are some people that will be all out crying although trying to sort of mm-hmm. suppress it and then others that um, are, are very much suppressing or very much just just quiet they keep to themselves I tended to be a person that although I'm not being obnoxious but I do try to joke and say oh you know what uh, just imagine what her commentary on all this would have been mm-hmm. and you know it would have been pretty funny, I think. And she, she would have loved for me to go and, you know, set some kind of a black magic curse on the people that are living in her old house. And <laughs> she would have wanted us all to be dressed completely inappropriately in very, very short dresses and all that kind of stuff. So, but that's, that's how I cope, right? I cope with a little bit of humor, but then when I cry, I have to do it alone. Yeah, I'm the same way. I don't like crying in front of people. I don't know if it's because I don't want people to attend to me. I would rather attend to them and help comfort them. So that's why I feel more comfortable mm-hmm. just crying kind of alone or in private with my fiance, where not everybody can see me. Mm-hmm. Why, why is that? I, like there's a lot of I think a lot of people are the same way like they're willing to cry but they only just want to cry when they're alone and not even around the people that are closest I think there's a few reasons I mean one is the whole you have to be strong right you you keep your emotions and you take care of other people and you can cry but it's when you're alone so other people aren't worried about you other people aren't trying to comfort you other people don't see you as weak I mean, I know I grew up and people always said, oh, you're strong, you're strong. So I kind of had that in my mind where I I do believe I have to appear strong. I don't think I let it harm my life too much, but I definitely do try and hide some more of those negative emotions until I am with people that I'm really close to or myself. Mm -hmm. That's, I I do feel, you know, very similar where you know and and that's of course even just trying to think of the word it's kind of like grief manners (laughs) (laughs) like like having manners when it comes to grief is is good because one of the things is you know you don't go to the closest person that has experienced the deepest loss and pour all your stuff on them 
right? You, you're supposed to go to them and offer to share their pain and then sort of allow that pain to radiate outwards away from them and oh, then away from you, you know, someone who's uh, less and less connected that you speak mm-hmm. to. It's kind of like a chain. You just kind of carry the grief until you are able to let it go. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, th- I think I'm often concerned about, you know, people's grief manners. <laughs> uh, some people truly that they're just so afraid of uh, showing any weakness around mm-hmm. children. That one has always, always bugged me because uh, we, we give kids the wrong message. We give them the message that crying is yeah. weakness. And that you're not supposed to show your emotions when we should be telling them the opposite. We should be telling them it's okay to show your emotions and it's okay to feel that way. Mm-hmm. That that first day after I found out, and of course, I mean, this is coming from the perspective of someone that does do counseling and, and engages in even my own counseling, but knowing all of these skills and tips and tricks, you know, here I am in the situation. And so, you know, number one, I had to find a quiet place where I could be alone. I didn't want to I didn't want to feel that actually in front of my son. And, and I, it wasn't that I was hiding it because I just, it was the first bit of it where I needed to just express and emote and not, not freak yeah. out. <laughs> and then even feel comfortable enough um, to do that because I, I mean, I don't know, is it going to be ugly crying? I haven't cried in a long time. It's been a very stressful year. So, you know, just finding uh, that space. And I found one place that was very helpful was actually just driving in the yeah. car. Yeah. So obviously not not getting to the point of like hysterical crying so that you can't see, in which case, please pull yes. over. But it does help to, um, you know, even just to go, go to a place that reminds you of them. Or uh, what I did was I put on, okay, remember how Whitney Houston did the bodyguard yes. movie? <laughs> Okay. So when I was little, this aunt, she, she had Whitney Houston CDs in or well tapes, I guess, and in her living room and we used to put them on and play them. And she always used to go, Lynn's, you got to sing that I will always love you. And so that, that always reminded me of her. So here I go in the car, I put on this soundtrack and then I just blast. <laughs> it was, it was terrible. I had to pull over. I find songs are um, very powerful for that though. Because you just feel the emotion and you can feel, especially if you have that connection to the song and it helps bring out that emotion. Mm-hmm. Do you ever find it's uh, sometimes it's helpful to even just start going through your whole music catalog, trying to find the one that has the right words? Yes, absolutely. Because then you feel connected. You feel it's like hard. Sometimes. You can actually put your emotions into words and it helps you express it. It sure does. It- it's um, especially if you all of a sudden know what you're looking for and you can see a, a song in, in a certain light that maybe you never saw it that way before. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like I thought there's this song called um, for now by Kina Granis. And the first time I heard that it was just out of nowhere as, you know, some kind of mellow music. And I thought that was dead on going to be the one that I'd connect with about this, but I didn't. It was because it's about your own mortality. Mm-hmm. It's there's this one, this one part of this song that always gets me. Um, it, the song is about thinking of all the others that have been here and gone have passed. And we're here. We are just living our lives like unobservant of all of the eons of history behind us. And how she's coming to terms with we are the ones for now you know and maybe it's okay for um only me to have known who I am and being thankful for having been you know a sister a mother a wife and I'm like oh Kate that's hearing me cry (laughs) (laughs) um but that one really resonated not about this particular death but about my Mm -hmm. own and that I think is one of the bigger things that people tend to avoid is, is just thinking about your own death because it's incomprehensible. Yeah. And obviously when somebody close to you dies, that's going to come up. You're going to be thinking about your own mortality. You know, how long do I have? How am I going to go? How will I be remembered? What can I do to live my life the best I can right now so that I make it worthwhile? 
Mm-hmm. And when you're overwhelmed with grief, even that question of what am I supposed to do to make it worthwhile is very tough. <laughs> yeah. There's a, a, one of the professors from Lakehead University, or at least she was my professor at the time, Kathy Cordes Miller, she wrote a book called Talking About Death Won't Kill You. And uh, that book is really helpful because it does shed light on that. Why is it that we are so avoidant of that when it's, it, it is inevitable? It's an inevitability. So uh, for those of you listening that uh, you'd like to learn a little bit more about why we avoid and uh, why it's important to address these questions, uh, that's a really wonderful book. And it's local, so. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, when it, it's just going back to like our own mortality, I think what comes up for people, at least what comes up for me, and you mentioned it, is what is our purpose? And we that comes with so much pressure. Exactly. It? Do we even have a purpose? Exactly. Are we even supposed to have a purpose? Do we need a purpose or can we just be? Hmm. I always go back to Gump what? and thinking about his philosophies on life, you know. The one that, well, everything happens for a reason. And another one that maybe things are just kind of more random. Or maybe it's both. And nobody really knows. Mm-hmm. I think we do apply a lot of meaning. And I think that's wonderful that we can do that. It's like, you know, the morning the morning after I found out about her death, I, I woke up super early. And I went outside and there was a double rainbow. And I I haven't seen a rainbow in quite a while, I guess, at least months, maybe longer. And so I applied that meaning to it's sort of like it's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And but I knew it, you know, I'm consciously choosing to apply that meaning. Um, and, and that must that must come up for you as well, even in the stories that you hear people sort of making meaning of what happens to them uh, or, or the other way around. And what are your thoughts? I think it's important for people to find meaning, because if we find meaning, it helps us kind of make sense of the situation and it's helpful to accept it. I mean, there are some people that kind of know it might just be random and there's no meaning behind it. But I think if you have a meaning, it's, it's able to tell yourself this happened, but it's going to be okay. This happened, but they're okay. And I can accept it and I can move on with my life. And especially looking for those little signs, you know, whether it's the double rainbow or, you know, um, my grandfather, he had a wife before, um, unfortunately they've both passed now, but he outlived his wife. And whenever we were in a diner and we saw a fly that wouldn't leave our table, he always said that was his wife. He's like, Oh, there's Tina. And it was just a way for him to know that, you know, she was kind of there. <laughs> Why a fly in a restaurant? I don't know. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, that's what I keep telling my son. I said, when it's my time, it, no, you know what? If I go early. Like if I go at 51, like, like my aunt did, I'm going to be pissed. If there's any way that I can come back and haunt you, I will be here. (laughs) (laughs) I think it, you know, it's, it's, it's a joke, but it's also like, yeah, if there is a way that I can, I will, but I also don't want him to feel alone. And that's, it's the after part, you know, the after part that kind of gets me too. I go, you know, so my son doesn't have any siblings. Well, what's going to happen when his parents are gone? You know, that there's just so much not knowing. And uh, then it can be really, it can be really scary to think about all the what ifs, because this is where your anxiety brain must, you know, take over. And especially with what's going to happen to you. You know, I think that kind of scares a lot of people, you know, some people are very certain in their faith, you know, that they're going to go to heaven or but then other people believe absolutely not. Once you're dead, that's it. And other people, you know, could believe in reincarnation, which if that is the case, I am coming back as a wolf. That is mm-hmm. But then that's anxiety provoking, you know, is if your life is it. And that raises a lot of questions for people too. And that creates 
can create a whole controversy because many people believe many different things and some can be very passionate about that. But the truth is nobody knows, Mm -hmm. which creates more anxiety because nobody knows. No, no, no one will ever know. But a lot of people seem pretty darn sure. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my. Oh, you've never met my Nona. (laughs) My my Nona. She always says that time I died. Oh, okay. My Nona is a very funny, funny woman, Um, but kind of in a dramatic, really upsetting, depressing way. Um, When I went down there for the funeral, uh, she had been down there for about a week and she immediately walked up to hug me. And I'm like, Nona, whoa. And I turned my head away and I said, have you been social distancing? And she looks at me and she goes, if I die, I die. (laughs) <laughs> oh good lord <laughs> um, but she often talks about that time she died on the table because she had heart surgery a few years back and they they do say that she she flatlined um and she talks about having this experience where um obviously bright white light um she goes towards it her daughter that passed away before was there but she saw her father and I I don't remember the exact details, but she said that he told her it's not your time. You've got more to do. And he sent her back and she came to on the table. Wow. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's pretty, I mean, there's no interpretation there. That's, that's pretty straightforward for a person to come back and go, holy cow. So, you know, for, for some of us that are a little bit more skeptical, again, it kind of goes back to, is that, you know, a, sort of a dream or you're just your brain state or what, what you, you know, what sense you made of the situation so that you could apply meaning to it or did something paranormal truly happen? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, sadly, we'll never know until we're in that position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to pay for it forever doubting her, I'm sure. But <laughs> <laughs> But it's, you know, still really interesting, you know, um, the dream factor, I I think I mentioned on the last podcast, I've got a lot of, I get a lot of my stories from my family, my family are very, very loud animated characters in my life, they've always been the story. Uh, But they, they talk a lot about, you know, these dreams after they lose someone that person appears and lets them know it's okay, it's, you know, I'm going to be okay, or some vision of this person. Um. I always notice as well that you don't typically dream about the person in the first little while while you're still actively grieving. You start dreaming once that person's memory becomes sort of second or third in line on what the things are that you think about every day. It's like they have to move into your subconscious and that's when you start dreaming about them. It's never right away. Yeah. And a lot of people wait for those dreams, like you said, to know if their loved one is okay or not they wait for them to appear in their dreams because for them, that's the sign. That's the way they know that their loved one is okay. Mm -hmm. I still think it's strange sometimes after, after losing a person, I tend to look at it like in a narrative perspective, uh, like in a book, you know, everybody has a book, everybody has a story. And in this story, this book, like, again, I know how this person's story ends. I know what chapter they end on now. And I wish I could have told them. And it's just so that's kind of that's how I sort of rationalize it uh, and almost find Mm -hmm. a way of acceptance. Because if I imagine it or visualize it as now it's been written and now it can't change. Well, then I don't fight with it as much. Yeah. Because it's kind of definitive. There's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. And it reminds me that there's lots more to come. Yeah, absolutely. You have your own chapters to write. Mm -hmm. And that person lives on throughout the lives of their loved ones and their friends. Mm -hmm. What do you say to someone that feels sort of shortchanged, you know, by someone being in their life, maybe only a short period of time, or, or even, you know, a, a parent that outlives their child, and they go, you know, hey, that they should, they were supposed to outlive me, like, this isn't suppo- how it was supposed to be. How do you, how do you pr- approach that? Well, actually, I do have one client who I'm working with, and her husband, they were only together for a few years. 
and she says, I feel cheated sometimes, you know, because we only got to spend a short time together. But as we work through processing his death, she's like, you know, we only got to spend a short time together, but that time was great. You know, at least we got to spend that time together. So it's kind of trying to shift your perspective and instead of why are they already gone, it's at least they were there for that time. You know, at least they were able to live some of their life. At least I got to be a part of their life. And that's hard to do. I mean, that takes a long time to be able to shift that perspective. But I think once you are processing and you are healing, it does become easier to kind of see it that way. Mm-hmm. It really, it, it does. It's, I think it, we go from that resentment and the sadness and the anger um, to the appreciation and the gratitude for what we did have, you know, better to have loved and lost than not to have loved at all. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, even just with, even just with my dog, who is like my child, about almost two years now, um, we got news that he was dying. We were told he had a tumor on the neck of his bladder and it was inoperable and he was already older at that point. So he was just palliative. And wow, I just remember you know, begging and pleading with any higher power, even though I'm not religious, just you know, please let my dog live a little bit longer. I just want some more time with him. And it actually turned out to be a misdiagnosis. He actually just had an enlarged prostate and had to get neutered. So he's actually fine. and He's still alive. Um, and he's 12, going to be 13 this year. Mm-hmm. But even just looking at him, like, I know whenever he dies, it's not going to be enough for me. I know I want him to live with me and us once again go out together like the notebook (laughs) but I know especially when you're looking at like a dog you know you're going to outlive them and that's the hard part so it's trying to be there during that time you know that time actually helped me put it into perspective made me look and say okay you know what his time might be coming up I gotta make the most of it and that's the other thing is realizing you don't have to make the most of every second, every day, every hour, because that oh, is thank exhausting. You. <laughs> thank you. Thank yes. you for saying that. Because <laughs> we heard that. When I, first found, yeah, when I first found out he was what I thought was dying, you know, I was trying to spend every moment just being with him. And he's just sitting there sleeping. And he's like, can you leave me alone? <laughs> and I'm like, no, I have to be with you. I have to be in it. And then I was like, okay, no, this isn't good for either of us. But really just appreciating the time that I have with him while he's here and noting that I can make the most of our time, but it doesn't have to be constant and it doesn't have to be stressful. Yeah. Yeah. You can make the most of the time, uh, but not, not by forcing it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. They're, God, they're such good companions. I complain nonstop about my dogs, but you know, I've even said this past year, both my dogs are three years old. One of them's a big one. He may, he may get to nine, maybe 10 if we're lucky. Um, the other one, the angry one's probably going to live till 17. <laughs> it's like these two birds. We used to have birds, actually. My, my parents had two budgies, the blue one, Buddy, and uh, the green one, Bob. And Buddy was the cutest. Like, he was so friendly. He would hop on your finger. You could bring him around and you wouldn't take off. Bob, you put your finger in that cage, he'd bite it off. <laughs> Yeah. Guess who outlived the other? (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Yeah, right? He just stayed alive with the power of his anger. Yeah. (laughs) But it's interesting because it's like people coming in and and out of each other's lives. Uh, You ever ever see, like, you ever walk down by the marina or by water and see those big clouds of bugs? Yes. You you ever, like, I know most of us kind of like back away, we run from them, but sometimes I like to watch them because they do this dance. And some of them kind of almost fly in place. Some of them kind of stay a little bit more still. And some of them will come up really close to them and then fly away and go up. And they kind of, all of them do this dance that where they flit in and out and in and out. And, and I often think about that in the terms of our stories. Some people 
will stay close by. Some people we will grow old with and others will just be there for a short period. And, and we take what we can, we learn what we can, we give what we can. And that's just, that's just life. It began before we were ever here. It'll continue long after we're gone. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually a really beautiful analogy for an ugly, gross thing of flies. (laughs) (laughs) You're not supposed to walk through it. That's the only thing. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> it's re- it's really interesting when you watch the dance, when you you start to see even just paying attention to really what real nature is all about. Uh, you know, we, we sometimes have this sort of Disney version of what nature is really like. And then one day I'm at Vickers Park and I see this big bird swoop over me and I hear this like and I look and it lands on a branch and it immediately starts pulling the feathers off of this smaller bird like it didn't didn't kill it it literally just I was under this tree and I'm watching feather 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 I'm like oh my god (laughs) or or like sitting in a boat you catch a pickerel and then you go to take it off the stringer and there's a pike on the stringer having swallowed the pickerel like (laughs) you know this this is sort of real nature and nature can be beautiful beautiful and also terrifying <laughs> yeah also just real so they don't real. shy away from it you don't want <laughs> it's just in your face and and so i think some people another, oh, sorry go on i think another thing that's hard with grief is when you have multiple deaths Oh, when it's not just one person you lose, but multiple people you lose. And it's not even people that are close to you, just people that you know. I mean, I know I, I experienced that a lot. I used to work on the street outreach team. And, you know, you would get pretty close with your clients. You know, you hung out with them. You saw them daily. And unfortunately, for people living on the street, their health isn't the best. And while I was there... I probably know about 70 people who have died. Wow. And it's just, it's hard because eventually you become numb to it. And I see that with a lot of people who have had a lot of deaths, they feel like they're just numb to the grief now. And it may be that way for a little bit until your body kind of regulates and things kind of stable out and you're ready to process the grief you just kind of have that numbing because it's just kind of too much for you to handle. Mm-hmm. So the numbing is survival, right? Absolutely. I mean, grief after grief after grief, there's only so much stress your body can handle. So when it gets to that point, it just kind of shuts down in a way and just numbs it out until you can kind of deal with it at a later time. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, what what happens if we don't numb it out, if we can't compartmentalize? It becomes very overwhelming. I mean, very overwhelming. It takes up your life. You know, it's hard to function. And a lot of us need to function. A lot of us need to still take care of ourselves. We need to eat. We need to sleep. And if you weren't able to compartmentalize or at least block it out a little bit, it makes that a lot harder because your grief is the only thing that you're paying attention to is the only thing that's driving your life. And that makes taking care of yourself and your survival hard. Mm-hmm. Right. Do you, do you feel like um, the impact of multiple losses if you like if you can't compartmentalize say if you've got nothing to do it like you don't have to do any planning you don't have to take care of anyone does that feeling of grief sort of compound or do you think it's still that same depth of feeling of grief and just kind of all at once I think it depends on the person yeah I think it depends on the person and their situation because everybody experiences grief differently So it all kind of goes into how you process grief and who are the ones that you lost. Does it all hit you at once? Does it hit you in smaller chunks? You know, we get kind of what we call grief waves where it'll just hit you out of nowhere. You'll just feel all this grief and you might break down crying. 
And at first the waves are big and they're often, but the more you're healing, the more spread out the waves get and the smaller the waves get. Mm-hmm. There, I, I think you're, you're really right about that. And the wave analogy has always been one that really sticks um, because it does, it just, it comes in just these bursts and then it's over and you sometimes don't see it coming. Um, earlier this year, I, I had a miscarriage and I obviously, you know, when you're in it or maybe when, you know, when you're kind of healed up, like the work is being done or it's, or it's done. But then we went on our honeymoon and we had such a nice night, just really, really wonderful, a little bit of wine, a little bit of steak, whatever. And then by the end of the bottle of wine, I was a blubbering mess. All of a sudden, just wham, it was just this tidal wave that just knocked me off my feet. I didn't see it coming. We were having such a nice time. And it was just this realization, you know, that things should have been different. And uh, Mm -hmm. I think, I think that can be really annoying for people too. people that, you know, you think that you've done the work as much as you want to have, you know, let, let's uh, grieve on, you, you know, on 10 out of 10 right now, let's just max this up and do it all now, but you can't, can you? No, absolutely not. It's something that's with you forever. It may not affect you the same way forever, but it's always going to be there. And you can't control when it happens. You know, it might happen when you're sitting at your desk at work and you're like, oh, geez, <laughs> you can't control it. And it, it is, it's always a part of you, which is another hard thing about grief. You know, it's not something that you get over. It's not something that you can just fix. It's something that just becomes a part of you and you learn how to integrate it into your yourself and your body and you learn to slowly heal it but know that it'll always be there Mm -hmm. there there are some people as well that will sort of deal with that grief by never wanting to love anyone again you know just by becoming sort of cold and 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 detached so that they don't have to feel that and I'm curious what your thoughts are about that style of coping I know it can be a common style of coping. I mean, even just after a breakup, right? You're like, no, I'm done with men. I'm never going to date again. (laughs) And while, you know, you think it can be effective, living your life alone is, is lonely. You know, not to have any family or friends or romantic partners that you care about. Is that a really a life that you want to live or would you rather live it with people? Even if you risk, you know, getting hurt in the end, you risk losing out on all of that positive, all of that support, all of that love, all of the fun and the good times. So really you have to think, you know, what's kind of better. Yeah. I may not feel as heartbroken if I just, separate myself from everybody but I'm not going to feel as whole I'm not going to feel as happy in my life and what does that do for my life you know am I living life the to my fullest am I living up to my purpose if I have one mm-hmm. that's a uh big questions. And I I know, like you said, it's common and there are many people that will go, you know, the rest of their life and that that's how they handled it. They just said, Nope, enough. I can't take that pain. And that's, that's where I drop anchor. And, um, you know, maybe for some people that right of, you know, here's the pros and cons. And even once those pros and cons are, are written out, which ones do you value more? Which ones are heavier, carry more weight. And that's kind of the, the decisions yeah. that we have to make. Now, it, another thing that did come up as well is that now I had a family member that mentioned they were feeling nothing, feeling nothing during the whole funeral, the whole supporting of the family for a solid week. But then as they were driving, they seemed to um, dissociate. They had sort of a an episode where people in the car uh, were were saying the person's name they hit a curb and the person was just unresponsive but still awake so I mean I take that as a dissociation because then the person was checked out of the hospital and was okay um what do you think might have happened there 
Well, it sounds like at the beginning, there's kind of a lot of denial, which is common around death. You know, it's hard to believe that. And when you don't really believe it, you're kind of in shock. You kind of are numb. You don't really feel anything because it's hard to believe. And I mean, depending on this person, this could have been traumatic for them. You know, they may not have been there to see it, but it could have been traumatic. And when you're faced with a trauma, your body kind of focuses more on your own survival. So the memory, memory processing isn't as great. And it can actually even fragment, which can cause dissociation because you're not really paying attention to what's going on. Just kind of images and body sensations are the ones that are being stored. So once things come down and you realize, you know, you're safe, you don't have to fight for survival. A lot of those memories, a lot of those feelings can start to come back or even start to be triggered a little bit. And that can kind of cause that dissociation because your body's like, whoa, we're getting overwhelmed again. We need to kind of back away from this. We need to, you know, separate this. And unfortunately, that happens with trauma. It can happen with grief, too, because your body's just kind of feeling overwhelmed. So it goes, no, we're not going to we can't deal with this right now. And it kind of distance itself from your mind and your body. Mm hmm. And so when you mentioned, you know, using EMDR as a treatment for something like that, how would that work and how would it help? I actually found that EMDR can be very effective. So for those who don't know, that's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy. So basically when something traumatic happens, whether it be big traumatic, a little traumatic, like I just said, it's kind of stored in your brain differently. It's not fully processed. So it's easier for it to be triggered and have all of those emotions come back up. So what I do is I use uh, bilateral stimulation. So this can be holding buzzers in your hands, following the tips of my fingers with your eyes, or even just like tapping on your legs. And what that does is it helps make that memory easier to process and helps your mind kind of heal itself. And I found this is actually really good if you do have lots of deaths, because what you do is you go back and you work from the first death. You process that one and then you keep processing them as you go. And as you process the earlier deaths, it really helps how you feel about the later deaths. And it's a way for you to just kind of work through those emotions, work through those memories and help get to a place where, yes, you're still going to miss the person. Yes, you're still going to have your sad days, but it's a lot easier to accept. And the death doesn't seem as disturbing to you. Mm -hmm. and, and what you mentioned there, starting sort of from the beginning, uh, there is a connection then in how, how intensely we feel about a recent loss. Uh, so there's a connection um, to the, you know, our first loss or our first experience that is similar, isn't there? Absolutely. It all stays with you. I mean, one client I'm working with, we went back and did her first death, which was um, her dog got run over when she was young. And when we were reprocessing that memory, she could just feel it so immensely. All of the emotions, her hands were shaking because, of course, trauma can be stored in the body. And it's amazing to see how she processed that death, the death of just her little dog, to, you know, the death of other family members, you know, sisters, parents, because that affects your further memories with grief. That affects how you process grief, how you hold grief. And really, after we cleared that first memory, it helped clear a lot of the other grief memories that we ended up working with, too. It helped make them a lot easier to process. Mm -hmm. Well, that's incredible that uh, you're able to, you know, uh, sort of normalize that actually, to make it just understandable that it is often the same physical feelings, despite the fact that the situation may be different, you know, how we internalize our grief may be the same and become more intense over time if we don't, you know, it's just like that grocery store analogy I like to use like if we keep letting things pile up and and not letting them through the checkout or not slowing down that that line of items you know it's just going to pile and pile and then be too overwhelming to deal with 
So, you know, the, the more you have the opportunity to just focus on this, feel this and process, then the more likely you're going to have a chance to actually uh, to be able to move on and not have it there as this ginormous trigger that may set you off at any time. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, then when you know somebody does die, you're not bringing up all of the other deaths that you have on process too. You know, you may be reminded of them, you may miss them, but it's not going to be every single grief hitting you at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And just one more thing I just wanted to clarify with you then before we kind of wrap up is just um, the difference between depression and grief. A lot of people will say, you know, I'm just really depressed. And a lot of times that comment will come on the heels of a recent loss. I just want to know if you could just kind of help people understand the difference. Yeah, I mean, obviously, when you're grieving, you are going to go through a lot of the same symptoms that depression has. That makes sense, you know hard time sleeping or oversleeping, decreased or increased appetite, feeling down and sad. But depression is when it's a long standing pattern. You know, if it's not getting better within months, if it's not easing up at all, then they can lead to depression because it's kind of more ingrained. Whereas grief, yes, you're going to have these symptoms, but they're not going to be as long lasting as depression can be. And also looking, did you have these symptoms before the loss or did they just occur after the loss? Because like we were talking about with COVID, you know, it's kind of like situational depression. You know, you're feeling depressed because of this grief that happened. And as you begin to heal from the grief and the more you kind of are distanced from the grief, the more you start to feel better. But if that doesn't happen, then it can lead to depression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's so difficult sometimes to differentiate just because it is it is this sort of combined feelings of sadness. And you really cannot put a timeline on depression or, or even on grief, right? It's, it's just, it's a way of classifying it in a way just to just to point people towards the right way of addressing it and treating the symptoms. So you know, there, there's going to be, as I always say, a big difference between even having depressive issues and symptoms versus having a diagnosed major depressive disorder that requires, you know, intensive treatment. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Kelly. This has been a really, really interesting conversation. It kind of went all over the place with, you know, our own mortality and, you know, common questions after losses, how people process, how you help with uh, treating some of those, and even some of the questions that many of us have uh, amongst each other and thinking about our own end of life and just really, really interesting conversation. It's going to be hard to write up a little, you know, blurb about what we talked about, but (laughs) this is about life. Yeah, there you go. Plain and simple. (laughs) Life and death. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. And we'll, I'm sure we'll talk to you again. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Okay. Bye.